Welcome to 50 Date Night Screams. I'm Amber Tresca. And I'm Mike Tresca. We're a married couple who decide to celebrate our 50th birthdays by watching some old movies. A lot of old movies. Join us as we watch 50 movies on our date nights and have fun dissecting them. As a bonus, each episode is accompanied by an original character I created and designed for use in your tabletop role-playing games. Many of the movies we watch are unrated, but this podcast is not. 50 Date Night Screams contains mature themes and is intended for adult audiences, so take care when listening. Plus, there are spoilers. Check the show notes to see where you can watch this movie before you listen. We're glad you're here. Have a seat, grab a glass of your favorite beverage, and get ready to scream along with us. He escaped the same night they caught him. The chase led through the Boston subway system on foot. He accidentally fell on the third rail, and he was electrocuted. They shipped the body to California and placed it in that crypt. Almost three years ago. Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of 50 Date Night Screams. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Mike. Hey, Mike, what is up? 17 episodes? Yeah. Holy cow. That's a lot of movies that we have sat through. I know. They're not They're not all winners um, <laughs> in our 50 movie set of horror movies that are not always horror movies. Horror movies, question mark? Yeah, question mark. <laughs> Like, you notice that, like, at the end of that, my voice kind of goes up a little bit. Horror movies? But we have been able to find something great or not great, but something to talk about in every single one of them. For this episode, we are going to be discussing Grave of the Vampire from 1972. I want to start, as always, with a content warning. This movie does contain rape and a discussion of abortion plus all of the other things that tend to go along with horror movies but those are the two things that I think I need to call out because if that's not something that you want to listen to right now go ahead and skip this episode and we will catch you on the next one every single one of these is gonna have content warning it's gonna have something it's gonna have something (laughs) I want to be responsible I think it's good. It it lets you know what you're in for. Yeah. And there's some things that personally bother me when they show up in a movie that actually we haven't really come across yet. And I don't know if we will. And don't tell me about any of the movies that are coming up. Okay. Don't don't tell me anything. But it's very possible that there could be something that I find upsetting in one of these movies. But we'll see. We'll talk about it when we get to it. Anyway. All right. Episode 17, Grave of the Vampire. All right, Mike, this movie is from 1972. It is in color. It was directed by John Hayes, and it has a 5.0 out of 10 rating on IMDb. It is one hour and 30 minutes. The one-line summary is a young man... Born of a rape committed by a legendary vampire against a living woman, vows to locate and vanquish his undead father. One sentence, pretty good, very succinct. Yeah, there's, there's, that's pretty much the whole movie. 
Which I don't, it, I don't know if that's a problem with the movie or the <laughs> the, the statement is very succinct, but they both definitely match. Yes, that's a good point. I don't know that I would ever say a rape is committed against a person, but I don't know. I haven't really thought about how to restructure that sentence. Maybe I will do that later. But for now, we're going to talk about this movie and the plot. So hopefully, dear listener, you have seen it. It's actually pretty good. I'll just say from the outset here. It opens up. It's a great opening scene. Very moody cemetery at night. That that part enjoyable. The credits scroll over it. Credits are in like red, like blood font. Like, all right, I'm in. I'm there. I'm with you. Okay. We don't really know what year it is, but then it moves on to a college party. There's two students. Their names are Paul and Leslie. They leave the party and they get in Paul's car. So based on the car, I don't know what kind of car it is. 1940s, early 1940s is what it's supposed to be. They head to this cemetery that we saw in the opening credit scroll. Paul proposes to Leslie. And then we have, like in the first five minutes already, we've got some sexy time in the backseat of this car. It's not it, It's not really a very hot scene. I don't know what you thought about it, Mike, but I was like, that no, was not. Car scenes don't tend to be anyway, but car scenes in graveyards are really <laughs> particularly asking for trouble. So, uh we knew the setup was coming. We, yeah, we knew we knew what was coming. Um, but unfortunately, we didn't really get any great, you know, action there. So that's about it for that. All right. So we see a nearby crypt opens up. It's it's like an above ground. It kind of reminded me of like what you see in like New Orleans. So it's this above ground crypt. And out comes a vampire. I guess we don't know he's a vampire at this point. But you're assuming, right? Based on the name of the movie, it's probably a vampire. All right, out comes a vampire. His name is Caleb Croft. You know that because it's on the side of the crypt. Caleb murders Paul. Just like literally slams him on top of a gravestone, breaks his back, and then drinks his blood. Next thing Caleb does is he pulls Leslie into an open grave that's right there that's just been dug and unfortunately rapes her. We don't see that. But that's, you know, we surmise that that's what's happened based on what we're seeing and then how the characters discuss it later, of course. Then Caleb runs off. He finds a weird cluttered basement to hide in before dawn breaks. So a couple of things here. Caleb looks pretty rough when he comes out. And so why all of a sudden does he come out now? Was it the sexy time? Was it the kids? Presumably there's people that occasionally come there after dark or have previously. So why on this night? It's also weird too, because um, sunlight really doesn't, beyond the fact that he sort of rushes into the situation to hide, sunlight never seems to really be anything in this, which is fascinating because almost every vampire movie, sunlight's a big deal. Um, but this is, this is Blade. This is like the first Blade movie ever made. It is essentially a dampier. Um, ah, which I've been... We haven't gotten there yet. Oh, well, I'm getting there. Okay. But it's essentially that concept. So a lot of people have a problem with the idea that a vampire could even commit rape because there's definitely blood involved and, and people sort of trying to figure out how this is going to work. And if he's, quote, undead, is he undead and therefore can't procreate? 
Um, this is before all those tropes. This is 1972, my birth year. So this is before all those tropes got solidified in the movies, um, where it was absolutely possible. And vampire lore says that, yeah, you could absolutely be raped by a vampire. It wasn't, it wasn't this, like, why would that happen? Or how it'd be like being attacked by a zombie is like, can't possibly work. Um, so yeah, the, the, this setup is definitely trying to create the circumstances to propel the rest of the film. That said, he seems to have been electrocuted. So he's been out for three years. So maybe it just took him that long to wake up. Yeah, it was just coincidence. All right, I'm going to put a pin in that whole Dampier situation because there's there's a larger context here. Anyway, all right. So there is an eyewitness to this situation or to part of it. So there's an eyewitness who sees... Paul's body sees Caleb running off and he finds Leslie in the grave. He goes and tells the cops. So we kind of get the lowdown on what happened. We're watching this man tell the cops what he saw. All right. So he's telling this lieutenant. His name is Lieutenant Panzer. Lieutenant Panzer is immediately like, yay, this is a vampire (laughs) because he's like, Paul was drained of his blood. He's a vampire. He's trying to make his case to his other, his colleagues, I guess. They're not really on board. So he wants to find out more. So what he does is that they go and they visit Leslie. She's in the hospital. And they start showing Leslie mugshots. Can you identify the man that, you know, killed your fiance? And Leslie does recognize one of the people in in these mugshots. She immediately, she reacts to one of the photos. We find out, through the cops talking to one another, that this was a person who was a murderer and a rapist in Massachusetts. And three years prior, he was on the run from the cops. They caught him. He, he, he ran away. They were chasing him. And he ended up in the Boston sub, subway. He ran into the third rail and was electrocuted to death. They so badly wanted his body away from Massachusetts that they shipped him to to California to be buried. And that is, you know, how he ended up where he was. And then the next thing that happens is that it's it's nightfall again. Croft comes out of this basement. He's in a house. There's a woman that lives there. First thing he does is kill this woman and drinks her blood. Okay, so one of the things that occurs to me like, like literally just now, I watched this movie three times, okay? <laughs> literally just now, I'm like, the dude was a murderer and a rapist, was killed by happenstance. Why not just cremate? And like, I don't know what you're supposed to do with, like, I don't know what happens actually. If I thought of this previously, I would have looked it up. But why not cremate him and scatter him to the winds? Presumably there wasn't a next of kin around to have any say about the situation. Why does he get this fancy crypt with his name on it in California? Aside from the fact that if they had done any of that, we might not have a movie to talk about. Well, I mean, he's a vampire and this he's sort of this weird va- – he's not – again, a lot of the vampire – this is early vampire lore, right? This is – I don't know how – Is it? Hammer. Well, I think it's early 70s vampire lore for the movies. So yeah. now people think they know what vampires are and they don't realize the vampires were a very diverse lot who all did kinds of weird things. But one of the things is that um, this assumption that he has, you know, he, I think you'll mention it, we'll have this part of the discussion too, 
of how he kills people, right? You know, n- traditionally, it's always like you just bite the person's right. neck. Right. Yeah. And let's let's get into that because he kills two people. We we've, we've seen him kill two people, and what he does is that he murders them and then he drinks their blood. Additionally, he does not kill Leslie or drainer of her blood. Now, again, that has to happen be- to propel the mo- movie forward, but. It's just strange. It's kind of inconsistent with other depictions of vampires. Usually the whole thing is is that the blood's got to be fresh, whatever, whatever. And they can sometimes drink from rats or, or what have you to sort of sustain themselves. But it would be like us eating, like, I don't know, like, like you know, rice cakes or something for long periods of time and trying to exist on that. So the fact that he kills and then drinks and then notably – the woman, the the housewife that I hate that word, but like I couldn't think of a different one. So this woman that he kills, who is at home just minding her own damn business, and he ends up in her basement to hide out. He takes uh, some kind of a tool and like opens up her throat. And I was, I don't know for sure, but I kind of got the impression that maybe his fangs were retracted or not working properly or whatever. But I hadn't really seen that before, so that was interesting. Yeah, and they definitely wanted to make him a murderer. Like, he's yeah. more murderer and rapist, presumably, than he is vampire at, at parts. He's sort of a vampire, like, as an Like I said, the, the sunlight doesn't seem to be a big thing most of the time. He does well, hide he does run and hide. For, yeah. But, he, you know, it's not like, a, oh, I'm on fire and the sun's burning me kind of thing as much. Um, but the other thing is he's been around since – we'll find this out later, but he's been around since the 17th century. So I'm assuming he has some things – protecting him be it rules stipulations about what happens to his corpse so that's the only explanation there's that's never said in the film but he it's weird because he's been around for a long time and he seems very much sort of out of place right it's like the dude's been around since the 17th century it sounds like he's screwed up and i think he was in boston when he touched the third rail maybe he didn't know about electricity i don't know but he definitely like was off his game because he once he's up he goes into a completely different mode um, so he's capable of sort of doing other things besides just being a monster. Um, but it, so you, you sort of wonder what if maybe that was why. But again, it's I'm making excuses for a bare bones plot that just needs to move it along, which is he is not in a place where people know who he is. Right. That's one of the points is he had to be not only in a grave, but not in his grave where he was because he should be notorious and people should know who right. he is. People would know his face and all of that. Yeah. So back to Leslie. Leslie's in the hospital. The doctor tells her that she's pregnant. She's excited. Okay. Because she thinks it, that it is the dead fiance's baby. But the doctor also tells her that the baby isn't alive. He refers to it as a parasite. And he says, you are eventually going to give birth to a stillborn baby. He then very strongly recommends an abortion, which Leslie refuses and refuses presumably all prenatal care because of this. And she goes home in the care of her friend. Her friend's name is Olga. So that setup takes place is that they're rejecting medical science, basically, and what they're telling her. She really wants this baby. She thinks it belongs to um, the fiancé that was killed. The movie came out in 1972, so I had to do a very brief piece of research on abortion, knowing that it was not legal federally until 1973, famously. 
However, there were several states that had legalized abortion prior to that, some of them many years prior to that. So in 1972, in California, abortion was legal. Some of the reasons that you could have an abortion were rape or incest, or if the pregnancy would hurt the health of the mother. So fulfilling, I think, two conditions in this instance, which is why the doctor would be recommending it. Very interestingly, it was Governor Ronald Reagan who signed that into law in 1967. All right. But the one thing that was removed from the law before he signed it was that they took out a provision that would allow an abortion if it was determined that the fetus was going to be born with a birth defect. So that was something that was part of the laws in some of the other states. But in California, they specifically removed that part of it. So you couldn't terminate a pregnancy because of a potential birth defect, but you could because of rape or incest or the health of the mother. I had to look that up knowing a little bit about the history of reproductive care in the United States. I was just wondering. So that was interesting to me to to find out. And then also the movie would have had to have been set in one of those states in order to have this part of the plot. Really not necessary, actually, at all. They could have just told her she was pregnant and she could have gone home and had the baby eventually. Like, you really didn't need to go into this, um, there's something wrong with this baby, it's not really a baby type of situation. So I don't fully understand what that was about. Maybe it has something to do with the people that were writing it or the, the, or the, the directors that they put that little that little piece in. So often in film, you don't see abortion unless it is the point of the film. So I did think it was, it was interesting. And that was also why I got it, gave a content warning at the beginning of this episode because of that little interlude. Okay. All right. So now we go back to the Lieutenant. He decides to go back to the graveyard because he's investigating this situation. Of course he goes at night because why wouldn't you, you know, you think he's a vampire. Let's go at night. Maybe he doesn't know the rules. Amateur. Um, <laughs> amateur. <laughs> Rookie mistake. All right. Yep. Croft shows up. I don't know why. Whatever. He's there. Croft takes his head, mashes it with the cover of his own crypt, and then drinks his blood. So we never see any more about this. This is just like dead end. He kills the dude. Usually you kill a cop. Like a bunch of shit goes down. Um, that's kind of the end of it. Yeah, I... Caleb went to the mosaic school of head smashing, which is from Frankenstein <laughs> 80. Cause he really, I mean, one of the things I think the film does a really good job of is show how strong he is. The first kill he does, they, they're like, he broke his back over a gravestone, which is not easy to, you know, that's like a weird thing. Cause there's well, a big lifting argument. A, yeah. Lifting a man over yeah. his head and then, and then like throwing and, him down. And then, yeah. But not just throwing him down, like breaking him backwards breaking over him. it. Yeah. You know, and you, de- they don't, quite show it but what happens to the, the cop same concept it's just like it's it's a heavy you know grave lid and he's just using it like yeah. a like a sarcophagus paper. really i right. think that's really like the term is sarcophagus yeah Maybe. um so i think they do a really good job of showing that but it is funny because again he's not really that kind of vampire who just like is intent on biting you in the neck he no. just 
Well, he's not, the he's not the suave, let me hypnotize you and make it easier on myself and Mm-mm. then sexily drink your blood. No. Well, he gets just... there. We get there later, but not not, not start, here. Sure. Not at this point. All right. So now Leslie gives birth. So there's a birth scene. Olga's helping her. The baby's born. The baby is cold and gray. Olga's a little bit like, what the fuck? But she's not really saying too much to Leslie. Leslie's like, why is the baby? Leslie's kind of a dim bulb. That's the kind of the impression. <laughs> Leslie's like, why does the baby look like this? Oh, my God. Well, baby won't drink any milk. Durr. So they're freaking out. They don't know what to do. Again, kind of a little weird, you know, thing that's got to propel the movie forward, right? Leslie cuts herself. And the baby's like, ooh, blood. You know, I don't know. When I was breastfeeding my kids, I don't ever remember dripping blood on their faces. But that's what happens. The baby gets all excited, likes the blood. So Leslie's like, all right, let's go with this. Starts feeding him her own blood. (laughs) She names him James. So at this point, it's very clear to the viewer that this is Croft's baby. It is not Paul's baby, as Leslie originally thought. So the investigation goes nowhere. Um, Kind of strange that we have, like, the lieutenant and all of that. It just, that whole thing goes nowhere, even though the lieutenant told everybody that he thought Croft was a vampire, nobody does anything about it. And of course, Leslie and Olga don't say boo. This is the last we see of Olga as well. She's just gone. <laughs> she has this true. <laughs> she just sort of disappears. She just disappears. All right. All right. Yeah, but but I have I'm, I've been holding it now. I stopped. I stopped. I'm back. All right. All right. Go ahead. Dampier. Dampiers. Right, right. Dampiers are in Balkan folklore. They are half vampires. They are underrated, and they really were not explored very much in fiction until Blade came along, who did a very different version of this concept, partially because I think most people don't feel comfortable using rape as an excuse. So this is really sort of a very traditional Dampier story of a person who has had some kind of, of unfortunate uh, encounter, sexual encounter wait, with a vampire. Wait, 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 yes. Does it have to be an unfortunate sexual encounter? Couldn't it be a consensual encounter? Or is that part of it? It can be. Okay. Depending on the vampire, right? So part of the problem we have today is you're like, why would that have to happen? The vampire could just seduce the person or whatever. But, it, you know, there was a time where you it used to be you, you didn't know if the person was a vampire. It was very possible that you would be completely confused by the fact that they were a vampire and not be aware of it. Very often it would be a spouse. You'd be like, oh, my spouse is gone. I thought he was dead. Oh, he came to me in my dreams and we slept together and now we have a baby. So, right. um, but yeah, so, but I think in the, in the Blade, she gets bitten while she's pregnant. Yeah, well, yeah, the blade specifically, and honestly, for a lot of us, that's the first time we're introduced to the idea of a dampier, you know? And, I mean, first of all, I fucking love Blade. I love <laughs> the Blade amazing. movies. I, like, love Blade. I love the characters. I love the, the actors in those movies. Oh, my God. But it is like... Uh, uh, and you wonder why there's not more dampiers running around, I guess, is what I'm saying. is because if... He needs to, wants to, feels compelled to have a sexual encounter every time he kills or every night or whatever it is. Because I thought it was kind of weird that he gets out of this crypt. He looks like hell. He kills somebody, drinks a little bit of blood, and then, whoop, his dick works. And then, you know, that, like, like, odd, you know? And then why doesn't, why doesn't he, why doesn't he have a trail of half vampire kids if this is some if this is a regular occurrence you know like this movie doesn't answer that 
I have no idea why. The blade thing, blade is a more complicated situation. So that's why he's like rare in that universe is that she's pregnant and gets bitten but lives, which is not common. It's interesting in a lot of the other uh, popular vampire lore, vampires are sometimes not able. They're not right. sexual beings in that way. Famously, Anne Rice's vampires, um, their junk it's doesn't actually, work. It's actually common to Southern Slavic folklore. Mm. So this is a, it's, it's a peculiarity that sort of, if you got that, then you have, apparently men would pretend they were vampires. Be like, it's not my fault. I, I was a vampire. That she was a van that whoever that was she thought it was it was a vampire so this is how common it was what <laughs> okay all right yeah i'm yeah. gonna have to put some research in the show notes here mm -hmm, on this mm -hmm. um and then the twilight vampires are able to procreate so it's kind of all over the map i guess it's just i don't know you know vampires are made up so i guess you can do whatever the fuck you want anyway the story this story in particular is about James. Right. Who is a Dampier, right? So this is this gets yeah. you to the Dampier part, which is they are destined to be vampire hunters. That's the point. So right. um they're not they sort of have some of the vampire traits. Theoretically we don't fully understand till the end of what those are, but is the person who can definitely tell where a vampire can see a vampire for who they are and has the ability to sort of take them on, which is sort of Dampier lore goes way less sexy and much more gross. Um, but the concept is there. I mean, in Dampiers in folklore have like jelly bones and acid blood and tails and they're dirty. They're not they're not the passes as a human in folklore that we're mm. used to. But um the concept is there and this movie does stick to that. You and Professor Lockwood were together after class, that's all. We were. He was deeply affected by the death of his wife Sarah. It seems I resemble her. Thanks very much for inviting me. Good night. Wait. Look, you're never going to get a chance to cook your dinner here. James lives just about. Go borrow some pots and pans. All right, so we see that true to him being a dampier, James doesn't really have a normal childhood. He, we see him watching other kids playing baseball. He's standing there in the shade. As he grows up, he's aware. Somewhere along the line, he's made aware that he is half vampire and, and the circumstances of his conception. His mother dies young. Somewhere along the line, we understand that about 30 years have gone by. She dies. We see her in her, in her casket. The poor thing is used up, presumably from caring for James for all of those years and giving her her own blood. Girl, you probably could have uh, offloaded that, but um, that's what we have. So now James is big mad. He does not like what he is, what was done to his mom, all of this. He's tracking Croft all over the world. We don't see any of that, unfortunately. <laughs> um, that could have made a really great montage, like yeah. going around the world, going around the world, tracking my dad. <laughs> um, we don't see any of that, but he does finally catch up with him and Croft is going by the name Lockwood and he is teaching mythology in college through night courses. I'm sorry, very mundane. 
know, like, why couldn't he have been in some far flung place in well probably because it's a low budget movie right you know what are they gonna do um they probably filmed it at somebody's university somebody who was in the cast or, or who was a writer or something um but anyway that's where that's where the two of them finally catch up and meet and then we see croft again he's looking good you know he's all it doesn't look all vampire-y anymore first thing he does on his way to class do 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 on the way to teach my class kills a woman on campus drinks her blood Goes to teach his class. <laughs> All right. In class. James is in this class, of course. He meets a student named Anita. And her roommate, who is named Anne. All right. So, immediately, Croft is attracted to Anne. I, by the way, I love... The movie keeps changing directions. Like, you're like, oh, this is going to be about a vampire murdering people in the graveyard. Then you're like, oh, it's going to be about him tracking his dad. Oh, now Caleb Croft finds his love of his life. Right. That's like it's right. constantly changing right. direction. And and he, the love of his life because Anne looks like his wife Sarah that was killed, you know, previously in the long long ago. Love of his past life. Boston. Pardon me. Yes. Yeah, one of his past lives. All right. So Anne's like this fucked up. She leaves. All right. <laughs> then we see Croft. He goes to the library. He's looking, reading some book, trying to learn something. And he he's like, can I have this book? And the librarian's like, no, that's like a special book. And he just like murders her. Murders her, drinks his blood. Because he's big mad that she that's won't a to let him. I, I mean, you know. But now, now, he's killed two women in one night. I think. Like, yeah. pretty much. And on campus. Something like that happening on a college campus, like, it would have been, like, lockdown. Like, everything would have stopped, you know, and nobody would be going out. There'd be curfews. There'd be all kinds of attention. None of that seems to happen. All right, so next we go to Anita's apartment. One comment on that book. That book is a big deal because he, it ha- it's mentioned in the dialogue of their folklore, and he's very anxious because it reveals – one of his past lives because he's been around since the 17th century. So this is his, like, at least third identity. We, there's that probably we know of, third. That we know of, yeah. Yeah. All right. We go to Anita's apartment. She's having a party. James shows up. There's some, like, groovy 70s music going on. And it's, very, it's very 70s, <laughs> man. It's very hip. Very 70s, um, baby. Yeah, so baby. Anita lays it all out on the line. She's like, hey, James, pretty sure that our Professor Lockwood is Croft and he's a vampire. And, by the way, I think there's something going on between the two of you, and I don't know what it is. And then she's like, maybe you're a vampire, James. And James is just, like, sitting there, like, stone-faced. Like That's that's James acting <laughs> throughout right. this entire film. Right, through most of the film. he's. I mean, I don't know how I would react if somebody said, I think you're a vampire, and our teacher's a vampire, and... Something going on between the two of you. I don't know what I would have said, but it wouldn't have been <laughs> nothing. Nothing. <laughs> All right. So Anne, having been creeped out by Croft, shows up since it is her apartment. She's pissed off that there's a party going on. She's like, I'm just hungry and I want to go to bed. And then Anita's like, well, James lives upstairs and he's here. Why don't you just go upstairs and cook dinner there? And like, whatever. Okay. Yeah, because right. she doesn't have utensils or something. I, there was a whole weird contrived. She just said it weirdly. Thing. She was just like, "Go yeah. borrow some pots and pans and pots cook and your pan. dinner." Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. All right. So Anne's like, eh. 
you know, goes with James to his apartment. She notices that he eats raw meat. Yeah. <laughs> Because he's left raw meat laying around. Like, also, like, ew, dude, ew. Although, you know, I dated enough in college to know, yeah, if you go to a dude's apartment and, like, what you find is what you find. That's all I got to say. Um, so, kind of tracks. That man lives alone, leaving, like, raw meat out on his on his table. There. And she's like, you didn't cook it yet. And he's like, that's the way I like it. He, it well, it was mostly <laughs> eaten. Yeah. And he was like, no, that's just how I do. And she's like, all right, let's fuck. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, and there was also a scene prior to this where Anne has a we- it's Anne right has a weird encounter with Croft. I don't know. What that's what I'm saying. Him. She's creeped out. Yeah, no, he's like, you remind me of my like, wife. Yeah, but he's she's almost like I'm compelled to be near you, kind of thing. And he's like, I'm going to let you go. See, I'm I'm cool. We're not going to force anything this time. Um, so there's that whole weird thing, and then this where she's like. Oh, I guess I'm going to borrow pots and pans from the neighbor upstairs. No, I'm going to sleep with him. Why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they spend the night together, and you see James, who, like, kind of looks like he wants to drink her blood. I can hear her heartbeat. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I've at times thought about drinking the blood of my sexual partners. I don't know why it's Uh-oh. weird. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm not in the next episode, you know what happened. <laughs> anyway, so... Enter Croft. He shows up at Anita's apartment. He's looking for Anne. Of course he is. Same night, by the way. Yeah, this is very busy. Everybody very, very busy, busy night. Very busy night. And Anita says, yeah, Anne's not here. I'm pretty sure she's with James. So Anita's also like, bro, I know you're a vampire. So guess what? I think you need to make me into a vampire or I'm going to tell everybody who you are. And he's like, okay, well, come over to my house tomorrow night and we will totally make that into a thing. You could be a vampire. Sure, sure, sure. So she's like, okay, good. I'm going to look in the hallway. I'm going to like be a lookout for you, whatever. Like you need to get out of here because you're not even supposed to be in here. So what does he do? Grabs a knife. As in many of the movies that we have watched so far, there are just knives laying around, cutting people sometimes of their own accord. He grabs a knife, slits her throat. Leaves the body. Presume he drinks. I presume he drinks the blood, because he leaves the body in the shower, and finds the body. The body does look like it's drained of blood, and Anna's screaming, ah, you know. And then Croft shows up for a minute outside the shower, menacingly. That is pretty creepy. That was that was pretty good. That was a pretty good scene. But James shows up because Anne is screaming, and he you know takes her out of the shower and takes care of her. Anita makes this point of like, you know, you're in a dorm, you're a professor at night, like visiting, like yeah, this, that's bad. Like this is just this is a bad look, and which means care. nothing to him. Yeah, he doesn't care at all. No, none of that means anything to him. He, he just care. murders her. I mean, just yep. kind of. I mean, props for the attempted blackmail, <laughs> but you're by yourself with a vampire. Well, she had no back. Like there was no plan. There was B. no backstop like, there. Just do this, okay. Yeah. Or I'm going to tell everybody who you yeah, are. Okay. Like you, I don't think he cares that much. But And she was one of the ones who put this two and two together of his past history in that book. Yeah. Right? She, she was put the it one who had the book. Yeah. She mentioned the book. And, you know, then every, everybody was interested in this book because it was essentially connecting a dot between Caleb Croft, Adrian Lockwood, and Charles Croydon. Croydon was his older. Was the first. In the 17th century. Right. right. And then it was Croft and now Lockwood. Right. Which. I had a moment when Anita was sitting there going, Croydon 
Croft, Lockwood, like she's saying the names and connecting the dots and, you know, internal dialogues are very difficult to show on film. So the character has to sometimes talk out loud, et cetera, et cetera. Like I get all of that, but like, it would have been cool if the names had had some kind of connection to one another, if they all used the same letters or they all, I don't know, were, were different word, you know, different words meaning blood in another language or like anything that would have been connected to, or, or, you know, just something like that. But there was no, there's that I could tell there was really no connection between our, our boy. Caleb is not that fancy. No, I mean, or subtle. And also would have been like a dumb thing to do. Like truly, if you're hiding, like you definitely want to have like different names. Um, and they're pretty Anglo. But Caleb Croft and Charles Croydon. I mean, he, he liked alliteration for sure at some right. point. Right. Yeah. But other than that, there was really not like any, any connection. All right. So cut to the, the next evening, I guess. Also, again, this is like the third, I know it's the third act, but when you look at the first act, second act, third act of this movie, like hard right turns, man. <laughs> hard right turns. Not a montage, not nothing. All of a sudden, we just see Anne, she's like sitting outside just with a friend, new character. They're just talking about nothing. Um, and But then we gather that they are at Lockwood Croft. They're at his mansion. They're there for a seance. They're going to do a seance. You know, I did seances with my professors when I was in college. I mean, that was totally a normal thing to do. I mean, look, there were a few times when I was at professors' houses. Because Uh they did did tend to, like, live near campus. They usually had, like, nice, you know, a place for students. Like, you could have quite a few students there. We might have a meeting or sometimes they would have like end of uh, semester dinners. Occasionally we had watched a movie that they wanted to discuss in class and we just watched it some night at their house. I don't know how weird or odd that is. But so for me, like seeing that they went to his house for, you know, something and they're graduate students, too. Right. That was the other thing. Not too weird. Sans part. He's grooming bit. people. Yes. I mean, that's so, what you're understanding. He more or less says this later because he's like, you're all susceptible to, to my hypnosis. Like, he definitely, like, lays it right. out. That I mean, we're is... getting to that. I don't know why you don't yeah, want but, to explain Well, it because I'm trying to say that because I feel like that is the explanation. Why are they doing this? You find out later that's the re- – because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Like, why well, are that's they... what I'm saying is that right yeah. now you're like, I don't understand what's going on because they're all there. Why are they there? You know? And there's been three women murdered. And nobody's doing anything. You're all acting like nothing. So they do all go in to start this seance. And Croft is, like, talking. It's really weird. Like I said, I watched it three times before I really caught what he was saying. He was like, I determined of all my graduate students, you were the ones that are most susceptible to being hypnotized. And so, like, I did that. Um, So that's, I guess, why they're there. It wasn't just an invitation and they thought it would be fun to be there. He did plant something in them all right so they start the seance and then of course who does he want he wants his his wife he wants sarah to make an appearance and this by the way of course goes back to the original you know dracula because that's the other thing that's what propels dracula is the the need for him to reunite with his first wife you know. What he sees is almost like a reincarnation, a reincarnation. Or, or a continuation of the spirit in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So, so that, so that's something that that is a is a common theme in different vampire movies. Well, 
They don't get Sarah. Who comes through? Anita comes through. <laughs> My girl Anita coming back with her bullshit. So Anita comes back and she possesses Anne. She's talking through Anne and she's like, everybody, <laughs> this dude's a vampire. He murdered me and I'm going to possess Anne's body and we're going to fuck him up. So, <laughs> But Anne manages to come back. And to, I guess, evict Anita's spirit from her body. I, I don't know if the, I think Caleb's like sort he of helps. banishers are out yeah. of it. Yeah, yeah. He helps. But he's unable to get Sarah to come. Sarah never makes an appearance. Yeah, and he really wanted, I mean, I, I don't know what his plan was. I, I guess maybe he thought he would get Sarah to possess Anne and then they would live happily ever after. I, like, I don't know what his plan was, but I guess that's what he was trying for. And he got, <laughs> it went uh, completely wrong. It wasn't like he didn't just get her. He actually got the wrong person and he got the worst person that, you know, because Anita ruins everything she's in. <laughs> <laughs> Including bodies. Yeah. And I mean, also, like, Anne, she's actually British, I think. Like, you hear a little bit yes. of an accent. And yeah. She mentions it at one point. She is portrayed, aside from the one night stand with James, like, um, a little more cerebral. She's not into the partying and whatever. So and she's also, older, too. They make that point that she's yeah. older than Anita. So kind of an odd choice, I think. If if you are just going to have someone be possessed by another person, why wouldn't you just choose, first of all, somebody pleasing to you physically, which maybe she was, but then also someone who is very easy to manipulate or is is weak in spirit in some way, because that would make them an easier vessel for possession? Yeah, he, Caleb makes a lot of comments. That first encounter he has with Anne is really important, I think, because she's very much like, I'm afraid to be here, but I almost feel like I can't leave. I feel compelled to talk to you. And he's like, no, it's cool. I'm going to let you go. See how nice I am? And he was very much like, I want you to come to me of your own volition. So there's definitely this vibe that he he can murder and do whatever he wants to anybody. He doesn't want to do that with the person he's trying to tempt to him through this presumably possession plan that doesn't go it works it doesn't work at all it's a terrible plan (laughs) maybe a good plan poor execution i don't know (laughs) yeah all right so james and anne are upstairs because anne is now indisposed and then croft gloves are off just attacks the four other students that are there murders all of them one of them pulls out a gun the best actor in the movie because he's way. from Jersey, yo. <laughs> right, he, isn't he from Jersey? And and that actor, several of the actors went up, like had very long careers. Most of them are, are now past, but they had very. He was one of the ones that had a very long career, like worked steadily his whole life, and you could tell he like acted circles around. I mean, the movie overall is well acted in comparison to some of the other movies that we've seen, <laughs> but um, he. Uh, Definitely was acting circles around everybody else. He definitely had a little je sais quoi. Okay, that actor. Anyway, so he, he pulls out a gun, starts shooting at Croft. James hears it, runs back downstairs. And at this point, everybody is dead aside from Anne, James, and Croft. All right, now James and Croft are just knocked down, drag out fights. Pretty entertaining fight. James ends up on fire. 
Which, from the special effects side of it, was like, all right, all right, y'all bringing it. He's on Mm -hmm. fire. They have to put a blanket on him to put him out. He puts a blanket on himself, I think. Yes, yes. Puts himself out. (laughs) (laughs) Then they're fighting. And then they're upstairs and they're fighting. And somewhere in this, Caleb is like, oh, you're my son. (laughs) No, no, no. no. It's James is like, I'm your son. And he's like, oh, that's oh, why like, all right. I can push uh, you through a wall and you didn't die. Right, you know? yes, because, like, you're not really going to survive a fight with a vampire like that. Right, and it's interesting because, again, like, the film really tries hard to show that you're no physical match. Like, you're not going to punch him. You're not going to shoot him. And But then it's sort of equal, and then it turns into, like, destroying the house. Between it's al- it's almost like a standoff, like, because yeah. they're both of, they're of equivalent skill. Right. And stamina, fortitude. Mm-hmm. All right, they're fighting, fighting, fighting. They break a table. James pulls the leg off of this wooden table. Finally, stabs Croft through the chest, kills him. And it was funny because I was like, "Does he? Does that even work?" I mean, Caleb's such a non-traditional vampire. I was like, "Does it have to be a wooden?" How did he even know that? Steak? How did James even... even know to try that? You know why? He took Caleb Cross, Adrian Lockwood's mythology class and he learned all about <laughs> it, I'm sure. That, that, that could be. That could be. It's just, it was never introduced. No. This, how he was going to kill him or what they were going to do was never discussed, never introduced. He didn't tell anybody what he was going to do, not even Anne. What I found interesting, though, is that after he killed him, Croft didn't turn into dust or glitter, or any of the other <laughs> things that sometimes happen in movies when vampires are killed. He just suddenly looked like he did when we first see him. Wrinkly. Very wrinkly. And sallow. Mm-hmm. That's what we see. I found that interesting. Because what does that mean? I don't know. That his youth and survival was based on drinking blood? <laughs> But is he dead? Is he really dead? Or is he just in this hibernation just status? Just in his hibernation status. Yeah, and then if he, if he hears two kids going at it again, is he going to wake up? <laughs> that wakes me up all the time. Uh, for sure. So James is like losing it. Now we see some acting. We see some emotion. <laughs> He's screaming. He's holding his head. He's, you know, carrying on. And finally wakes up comes down the stairs and sees him losing his shit. And he turns and looks at her and he's like, run! And she's like, what? You know, I mean, she probably has a concussion or something. So it's like, it's no <laughs> surprise that she really doesn't, I mean, she's not a dummy. Um, and then he turns and looks at her and he has got some big ass fangs. Anne runs back upstairs and James follows her up the stairs. Dun, dun, dun. And then, final screen, it says in French, I probably should have looked up how to pronounce this, but I'm just going to give it a shot. What do I know? It says, fin, you know, end. Upu Ethropa, which is like the end, but what happens next? Or is it really? Or is it thing. kind of thing? Yeah. yeah. Or is it? The end or is it? Mm-hmm. So... I don't know. Maybe they were setting themselves up for a sequel. I don't think we got one, though. (laughs) No. Yeah, we got Blade. Yeah. We got Blade. (laughs) Lockwood. Croft. Croydon. (laughs) 
You're imagining things, Miss Jacoby. I want you to make me a vampire. Slowly mix my blood with yours. Until one night, while I'm bathing in the light of the full moon, the black magic will take place. And I will come to you as your bride and serve you for all eternity. And if I were Croft or Croydon, the idea of a companion for all eternity, the relationship would become a bit stale, don't you think? I pride myself on my imagination. Do you think we should give this movie some ratings? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Let's start by giving this movie knives. So our rating system is knives, wine, and screams, and knives from zero to five knives. And this represents what the body count was, how scary was it, was it gory? Did it live up to its title? And before we give it knives, I would just like to say that there are 11 deaths in this movie, not counting poor Leslie, who dies of somewhat natural causes. I'm assuming James didn't kill her. Um, Croft kills 10 people and then James kills Croft as number 11. All right. I'm going to start with you, Mike, between zero and five knives. What are you going to give it? So I've, I've given out my five knife. Um, so this isn't five knives exactly, but it's pretty close. I I'd say there's quite a few kills. They are pretty brutal, maybe not as gory. Um, but I I'm willing to go four and a half. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I'm going to agree with that. Yeah, I'm going to hold off on the five. I don't, I'm not ready to give out my five yet. You know, <laughs> holding on to it. Unlike right, Leslie right. and her virginity. <laughs> That's bad. I'm going oh, to cut that. I'm going <laughs> to hold on to that five for a little while longer, I think. Um, yeah, I'm going to agree to four and a half. It's four and a half. It, moderate body count. Now, here's the thing about body counts, though. We've seen some movies where there was just, like, random people dead in hallways and stuff like that. That's not... You don't know those characters. You don't know who they are. They're just collateral damage, right? So, to me, that all of these characters, like, had names and almost... Uh, thinking. They almost all had lines, too. So, like, they were actual real characters that were killed. So, pretty high body count. Not super scary, but, like, when he shows up and Anne is in the shower and she's screaming because Anita's dead body is in the shower and he's just like, ah, you know, like, that was, that was pretty good. That was pretty scary. Like, he was fucking with her at that point. That was pretty good. Um, not terribly gory, but there was definitely a few times where I was like, ooh, ooh, he's going to crush his head with the top of the sarcophagus. Ooh, ooh, you know. And then the movie was called Grave of the Vampire. Like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You gave it a descriptive name. And it fit. And it fit. All right. Now, let's move on to glasses of wine. So that represents how fun was it to watch. Did it have any unique moments? What was the body like, for instance? The body of the, the wine. Body the body of the, of the count. Like the body <laughs> The body of, of the, the count, if we're using vampires. The, the aroma. You know, what was the mouth feel? So what do you think? <laughs> How many so glasses many of vampire. 
I think we should give ourselves glasses of wine for some of these puns. Um, look, I I don't know where this movie was going. I was like, it's going to be the traditional vampire versus the cop who's a vampire hunter. And then that guy dies. Yeah. Totally different film. <laughs> okay. And then you're like, there's he's going to be raised and they're just going to have this like like you said, montage around the world where he chases the vampires. They're jogging in the world. That would have been That awesome. didn't happen. And then there's like, after we think that they, you know, he goes to his class and it's going to definitely be this kind of weird battle of wits. That doesn't happen. Then it's like a, a seance because who knows where that's coming from. And there's going to be this seance where there's going to be a spirit possession and his wife's going to come in. And that doesn't happen because Anita ruins everything. And then there's like the final thing, which is what I expected from the beginning, which was this knockdown drag off fight. I love this movie. It is not perfect. It is not perfect. No. The actor who plays James is just like a big slab of meat that doesn't really do anything. For most of the movie. He, that actor went on to have quite a career. So he, you know, was not it a just, poor actor. Yeah, he was just poorly directed, I guess. Because um, women throw themselves at him, too. That's the other thing. He's like, they're all well, like, he's hey. Like a, he's like a big, like, Kevin Sorbo looking Yeah, he's dude, like a big boy. He is not a character a that small... people might recognize. Physically, yeah. you can get it. Like, I physically bought him as somebody who could take on Caleb Croft. Yeah. But, um, the actor for Caleb Croft's voice is amazing. He actually voiced uh, several cartoon characters. Yeah. That's where I recognize yep. him. Yep. Uh, he's just, he's got a presence too. Yeah. So I enjoyed this. I, I'm not going to give it a five. There are some flaws, um, some of the pacing, the whiplash, but man, it plays to its strengths. It, it's a, you, you, you can't ask for more about from a movie named Grave of the Vampire. So four and a half. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I'm going to give it four. Points off for not being very original. It didn't really bring a lot to the vampire genre. It was pretty pretty much like a Dracula retelling, you know, a lot of stuff there. So, you know, if you're going to match it up against, you know, some of the other famous vampire, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? universes help me out mythologies mythologies um the way that the vampires were portrayed and whatever and there's always there's usually something different about them you know whether or not it was cool i mean uh the twilight vampires sparkled i guess that's what they brought to it but it was something different you know um pretty traditional so well acted which i appreciated but the unoriginality kind of killed a little bit so i'm going to give it four glasses of wine all right so Overall, how many screams? So this is just our overall rating. Just, you know, no holes barred. What do we, what do we think? So how many screams between zero and five are you going to give this movie, Mike? Yeah, I mean, there's things that, like I said, that weren't as entertaining. Um, and there was definitely some artifacts of it being the 70s. Um, certainly the way it handles the birth is not as, you know, as sensitive as we'd probably like it to be. But uh, he's supposed to be horrible, so I get it. And Caleb Croft and his various lives, um, I think, are portrayed in- interestingly. You know, it-, it does feel like it's three different movies. Like, each time he has a new life, it's like a new character they slap together. But I still really enjoyed it, so four and a half. Okay, all right. I think I'm going to stick with the four. I'm going to stick with the four. Not ready to go as high as four and a half. I'm not really ready to go as high as five. There were some things about it that just didn't hold together. Again, 
I recognize vampires aren't real and that's what we're talking about. So why am I concerned with certain aspects of the plot? Like, why did he have a great big fancy grave at all? You know, somebody paid for it. I don't think the state of California or the state of Massachusetts was going to pay for that. Um, so those things, which existed to serve the plot, but there was never an explanation for them, kind of gets under my skin a little bit because a clever writer could have found a way around that. Maybe it wasn't necessary for him to be transplanted from Massachusetts to California. What was the point of that? In any case, so I'm going to give it four screams for my rating. All right, let's move on to the character inspired by this movie that Mike has created for use in tabletop role-playing games. Well, Mike, I think you have two choices here. To me, uh-huh. you have two yeah. choices. Yeah. Unless you make a hard right turn and like do like Anita. I don't know. <laughs> you stole the joke. I was like, it's Anita. She ruins everything. <laughs> She took over the character because that's what she does. Even when you kill her, she she shows up. All right. Who is this character? It's not Anita. It's not Anita. Anita. It's Caleb. He's too good. I can't. How could you not? Come on. Come on. Caleb is. Caleb slash Adrian Lockwood slash Charles Croydon um, is definitely. uh, I just kind of love him for his purity. He's just a jerk. He's like a monstrous jerk. He has a horrible temper, but he's very educated. And you can tell he thinks he's better than everybody. Um, oh, and he's, for sure. It's, a, it's, it's kind of Boston-ish, I got to yeah. say. He's sort of <laughs> just like, he just, posi- even when he's pretending to not be a vampire, he just positions himself as sort of like, I know everything and you people are morons. And I just love him. I just, I'm like, you know what? That's probably how I would be as a vampire. So I'm there. I get it. Um, and I think it's great. So he's he's very compelling. He's But he's not... A suave. He's not subtle, uh, other than he hides, right? And the way we put, I set him up was very much fleshing out on that that idea that he's really trying to pursue his wife, uh, his long lost love. But he's the twist we put on him is that he can't do it through religion, so he feels he's cursed. And he can't resurrect her because in sort of Dungeons and Dragons, typical fantasy games, you'd be like, well, just if you want to see her again, just do the thing. So he believes he can't. He's not sure what would happen, but he's pretty sure he can't. So he he wants an arcane version, a wizard version of resurrector. And that's actually a lot harder in D&D and other games sort of that are, you know, old school role playing and anything else that's a derivative. It's actually a lot harder when you say you can't cast spells to raise the person. You're going to have to use some other method. So that makes him very interesting because he's looking for books of lore. He's essentially looking for something that's not your traditional obvious means of bringing something back from the dead. And he has time to do that. So he's sort of this library lurking villain who's always looking for arcane lore to get around. He's trying to find a loophole around the the divine uh, mandate of how you raise or or not have people stay dead. So uh, I think that makes him an interesting character. And, and a, he he's certainly an interesting villain who could leave a litter of bodies for sure, a trail of bodies behind him uh, for adventurers to find. So how did you stat him up? Because I could see him being very intelligent, maybe. I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. Maybe really charismatic. But how did you balance those things? Yeah, vampires uh, traditionally tend to have, like, 18s in all their stats, and that's true. Strength, Dex, Con, you know, he's pretty much the full package. His charisma is high, partially because of his 
creepy hypnosis abilities. He fancies himself smart. I don't know if he's as smart as he thinks he is, um, but he certainly thinks he is. So he's pretty, you know, he's he's definitely a physical character as well as someone who can bluff and lie his way through things if he needs to. And vampires famously can usually show up anywhere, anytime. So where are we going to place him? Where might he be in a role-playing game that a DM might consider using him? Universities, for sure. I love the idea that he's sort of a book vampire. Not because he's necessarily that book, you know, he's not like the librarian type, but because he's sort of definitely lurking on the edges of wizard schools and, and forbidden tomes and, and libraries because he's sort of competing for certain knowledge. So that makes him very compelling as a antagonist. He could frankly be someone who hires the party to find books, or he could be competing with them to find something. But he's definitely the kind of guy who's around a lot of books, which, you know, depending on where that is, that could be in a city. Um, it could be in a university or institution. It could be a crumbling castle where there's a forgotten library. That's, you took that third one, right? I was like, could he be in, like, ruins? Could he be yeah, skulking around totally. some kind of ruins? And I also imagine that he probably has lots of aliases, lots of previous lives. So that might be played up, too. And he's kind of a necromancer. I mean, I actually made a, you know, he's, he casts spells. So he's not your traditional, again, he's a vampire who knows how to do seances. He knows how to sort of do magic jar and possessions and stuff. So he's trying to find that spell that's going to get Sarah into a body. That's what he really wants because he can't raise her. Um, and so he's always looking for that kind of stuff. And I think that just, it's just a very interesting angle that you don't t traditionally see. And of course, I'm taking this from the movie and sort of, well, it was probably a few minutes of, of dialogue and going in a direction, but I think it makes him different from other vampires. What about minions? Does he have any minions? Does he's he have really a, a minion? He's not really a minion. <laughs> we just saw Renfield. He's not really a minion kind of guy. He's uh, okay. he's definitely a lone so wolf. So he's solo. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so he's, he's the kind of character that's challenging in, in this way. I do make a point that if he kills somebody who he's bitten, he can turn them into vampire spawn. So he can sort of do this... Um, you know, where he can have sort of people he creates in the moment, but it's not something he's doing. He's not creating an army, so to speak. I think he likes to be on his own. He doesn't really like humans very much or minions as near as I can tell. Yeah. In the movie, he was pretty much solo. There was yeah. not, he didn't have a, so it was unlike some of the other mythologies where there's a minion, sometimes many minions, sometimes uh life partner. I don't know what you want to call them. Makes <laughs> other vampires. He was remarkably unconcerned about stuff that happened during the day. In fact, it, the movie almost doesn't even deal with it. Like, it's not like we're seeing him hiding during the day or no. see what he does. He no. just didn't. He, he, he's a professor at night. He well, takes he night class. great big weird house. He does say to Anita at some point when she says, please make me a vampire. Well, she didn't say please. She was like, make me a vampire. And he says, to be together for eternity? Well, that's going to suck. Like, who wants to be like with one person for eternity? Like that's kind of funny. <laughs> a little bit like uh, Carnage. There's definitely yes. a, a thread going through this film that uh, marriage is not all it's cracked up to be. There's definitely that vibe between the you know the that initial let's propose and do it in the graveyard to his little commentary uh, down to Anne later or to Anita. Excuse me, to Anita later. Um, it's definitely there's an implication that like eh, it's not for everybody. So I thought that was interesting too. But at the same time, he is trying to bring Sarah back because yep. she is the love of his life, presumably. 
Yeah, so, I don't know if she was married. I, I I assume that was the love of his life, but I don't know if she, they were. I assume they were. Yeah, they were. They were married, and in the movie, Sarah was like burned, like the good people of Massachusetts. Oh, that's right. She was burned as a witch, right? Or burned as a like as yeah, a whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's just trying to get her back again. So he presumably does believe in. I don't know, soulmates, whatever you want to call it, you know, but he just wasn't interested in having a side piece, I suppose. Because <laughs> he could have gotten away with that. She was willing. She was in love with him. She said it many times, Anita. She was in love with him. So I don't know how that is. That's a weird thing, right? <laughs> Anita ruins everything. <laughs> I think that is our very own tagline for this movie. We could call this movie Anita ruins everything okay mike so where can people find this character so that they can incorporate it into their tabletop role-playing games you can find this character just like all the other characters that we've been putting on our patreon.com slash talion so it's patreon.com slash t-a-l-i-e-n uh, every episode we release the, on the podcast we actually have a matching villain released as well so they'll be released on social media you get that for free and then we'll also be releasing them as part of 5e Foes Gothic Villains. And that's actually a supplement. It's actually an add-on to 5e RPG Gothic Adventures, which in turn is a supplement for 5 5th edition games. So you add all that up, you can get the character for free uh, right away. And then you can get all their villains, gadgets, and their best and worst friends in 5e Foes Gothic Villains on DriveThruRPG. All right. That sounds perfect, and I will put all of that information in the show notes to make it easier for people to find. All right. I think that will do it for Episode 17, Grave of the Vampire from 1972. All right, Mike, any parting thoughts? Uh, well, we already said an ear ruin everything, so no. I, I, uh, I'm, I, I'm, I, I. Can we call this Blade zero point five or Blade ha one half? Because <laughs> I yeah. feel like it was. It did. It laid the framework. Doesn't mean that people saw it or it was inspired. The Blade comic has its own history, but it was interesting. It's an interesting time capsule. Yeah, yeah, and an interesting thought that I perhaps don't know as much about the depiction of Daywalkers in film, aside from Blade. Because as I said, I love Blade. All right, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for being with us on 50 Date Night Screams. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to 50 Date Night Screams. Be sure to check the show notes to learn where you can watch this movie for free. The quality isn't always the best when streaming, so we've also included a link to where you can purchase it. You can also get much more information, including the characters from this and all the 50 Date Night Screams episodes at patreon.com slash Italian. Until next time, don't stop screaming. 50 Date Night Screams is a production of Mal and Tal Enterprises. It is written, produced, and directed by Amber and Mike Tresca. Mike Tresca.